0: So, I did that presentation, which was really, really successful. And then, even as working, even getting a job in the professional environment, it was just barrier after barrier. People don't want to accept you. You know, I'd be, it was really difficult. And I actually think if I didn't have the right support, I don't know if I would have been able to continue because it was so hard. I had one person in the workplace. Um, and then I started reaching out to other lived experience professionals because these people just didn't get what while, while struggling. And at times I didn't really have the words for why I was struggling because it's almost like a trauma response. You're going back to that, like, mm. you know and it's you know, people being confrontational or shutting you out of things. Um, yeah, it was really, really difficult to be accepted in the workplace. Mm.
1: Hi, I'm Naomi Murphy and this is the Locked Up Living podcast where we talk with a wide range of people about harsh aspects of institutional life.
2: We also explore some of the ways to overcome them and to grow and develop. I'm David Jones. So join us every Wednesday morning, six o'clock UK time for a fresh podcast.
1: Today's guest is Kieran Miles, who's a mentor coordinator working with Children in Care and Care Leavers. She was first arrested when she was just nine, 11 years old and remanded into a secure home when she was 13, before receiving her first custodial sentence at just 15 years old. Kira has fought hard to break down the external barriers that prevented her from securing a role working with young people and is now helping others to do the same. Kira is also a keen martial artist and competes in Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. Welcome, Kira.
0: Thank you, Naomi.
2: Hi, Kira. Very nice to meet you today. So, can you tell us a bit about your pathway into working with children and young people? Is this something you've always wanted to do?
0: Yeah, so I I always wanted to work with children and young people. So when I was in prison when I was 15 and they were talking about careers and stuff, I was like, I want to work with children. And I remember them saying, like, you'll never be able to do that because of your criminal record. Um, And we had loads of conversations about why that was and because i'd been labeled a violent young offender um but my argument was always that was never against it was never any harm to children so obviously i was a child at the time so why not um and the more people tried to tell me i couldn't do things the more i was like i'm going to do this one day but i wasn't in a place where i could do that yet so that took time um and when i was 21 i was at college and i was doing my gcses and i went to try and volunteer um at the local youth service. And they said that I I could, but I needed to come back once I had five years um, of no convictions. And by that point, it had been about three years or so. So I remembered the date and I remembered everything I needed. And when that time came, I rang them and emailed them and rang them and emailed them and nobody ever got back to me. Um, And I tried to volunteer with the children's home that I'd worked at. I lived at, sorry, the children's home I lived at, I went and knocked on the door and spoke to the workers, and I tried to volunteer at Secure Children's Home, and just nobody got back to me, so I kind of just came across all these barriers, and when I was um, competing in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, I, ha- I had a few injuries, and I had to have two operations quite close together, I snapped my ACL, which is a ligament in your knee, um, which needed to be replaced by part of my hamstring and I tore the labour in my shoulder so that needed to be stitched up so I was out of doing everything for a few months actually for quite a long time but I was out of work for like two months signed off um, while I did my rehab and stuff and I was just doing a little bit because I was bookkeeping at the time so I was working in an office um, and I, I just remember this is 2018 the end of 2018 the beginning of 2019 so at this point um, I'm much older and I'm, I'm There and I'm just thinking this, all of these medals and competitions, I love it. And it's been a massive part of my journey um, to get to where I am and to understand my emotions. But my purpose is to work with children and young people. And I need to start telling people where I've got to with no help from the services. And that was kind of how I how I started getting myself out there and speaking to people. Sorry, that was quite a long answer, but I wanted to let you know like the, the barriers along the way as well and how. How I actually got there.
1: You, you can hear your passion, Kira, for you know that you had that determination to work with children. But I, I suppose I was struck by something that you said early on, because I've seen that crop up in like Oasis assessments where someone it someone's recorded as being a risk to children because they offended against a child, but it was when they were a child themselves. And there doesn't seem to be much thinking about whether that's a, a risk as an adult to a child or, a, or as a risk to a peer.
0: Yeah, so my, I have quite a few violent offenses. Um, actually, I shouldn't use, I, I wouldn't use the language violent actually, but I use it because that's what's written in my reports. So I have, I have quite a few convictions from, you know, my last conviction was when I was 17. So all of my convictions are while I was a child and any assault or serious assault was against someone of a similar age, if not older so was that none of that's taken into consideration yeah. really yeah. I think people are a bit more open now but it's still for for people with that kind of background especially entering custody to get into these roles it's it's so difficult and for those people it's just a it's a knock back and it's a rejection I can speak for myself you know I just felt like I didn't realise it at the time because I still didn't have the words and the language, but I was just being pushed back in the corner and told that I wasn't good enough.
2: I really like the way that you describe how every knockback made you more determined to pursue the pathway that you'd chosen. That suggests really strong, strong will. And it sounds like life could have turned out very differently for you if you weren't so strong and Resourceful. What do you think were some of the the factors that that made the kind of positive difference for you?
0: So this is something that I reflect on quite often because as you grow and you look back, you um, are able to reflect differently, aren't you? And think about maybe that person was more supportive than I felt at the time. But actually, prison when I was fifteen and I went to prison, um, I went into HMP. And I live in Jersey, Channel Island. So even though we're part of the UK, it's slightly different. We have one prison, which is mixed. And the only female place to go is on the adult female wing. Um, so the law was that at 15, you could be sentenced and you would go onto to that adult female wing. So that's where I went when I was 15. Um, and the first person that I remember really making like a difference to me was a woman who had quite a long prison sentence for drugs. Um, and she was maybe 12 years older than me. Um, and she just spoke to me. I could take in what she was saying. She didn't ask me certain questions. I, it's like a feeling. And I think that's that, it's like that empathy between lived experience people. She'd been to some of the places I've been. She'd lived in some of the places I've been. And she'd been through some of my experiences. But she didn't instantly tell me that. But I just, the way she was, I was drawn to her. Um, and I left that prison sentence and I that was I was in year 10 and two months later I was back in I got a nine-month prison sentence and that was I was just going into year 11 then so my year 10 and 11 of secondary education was in prison being barely educated and we used to um, play Scrabble most afternoons because you know that was a wreck time and Just giving me that time, there wasn't much to do. So playing Scrabble was quite good and I was learning like new words and um, I'd barely been educated because I was first excluded from school when I was eight um, and I went to lots of schools after. So I think that was the first person that really made a difference. But the journey continued after that. Um, When I was 20, I met other people who were like me. Um, And I think that from meeting them and building connections, and trust, I was able to start to talk about how I felt and learn my emotions and believe in myself a bit more. Cause I think I was always determined and ambitious. And when I look back at my life experiences, especially as a teenager, I was ambitious and determined, but I was also really traumatized and angry. And, you know, all of my emotions were being channeled in the wrong direction.
2: Mm, thank you. And I think you mentioned um, a bit earlier about going to 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 college. Did, is that right? What were you doing at college?
0: So I went back to college to reset my GCSE. So actually, when I was 16, I first went to college, I wanted to be, I decided if I can't work with children, I, I liked cooking. So I wanted to be a chef. And actually, my memories of cooking are when I first started getting suspended from primary school, it was before I was expelled when I was eight, I was about seven. And there'd be times where I was out of school and I would go to this like activities club, which I'd go to after school because um, my mum was at work. So we'd go there after school and. When I was suspended, I'd be there and the, the chef would be in the kitchen and she'd be cooking snacks and stuff for after for when people finished school and there was always hot meals for the nursery children. So I used to go in the kitchen and do stuff with her. So that's when I first started to, to enjoy cooking. So that was what I decided I want to be a chef. But they wouldn't let me on the full term, full-time term, full course because I didn't have the qualifications. Um, I hadn't sat my maths in English GCSEs. So they let me on the day release programme and said that I needed to get a job to continue to be on there, which didn't last very long, um, I went back to prison, and when I yeah, so when I was twenty one, I went to college to try and get my maths and English GCSEs because I knew that I needed them if I want if I wanted to progress in anything.
2: You clearly were very good at uh, spotting chances to pick up and develop yourself. So although chance may have come into it to some extent it seems as if it was your determination to follow up opportunities when you spotted them that made a real difference. What else do you think we could be doing to help people to follow a pathway out of crime?
0: So I remember talking about college. I remember one tutor, actually, it was my English tutor. So when I started college, I used to leave at lunchtime. I'd leave at break time. If I didn't like it, I wouldn't go. Um, because that was my experience of school. Now, I really wanted to do this and I kind of had to learn that you had to go and sit there from nine till three and you had to revise. So over the course of the year, my attendance went up significantly and I I got both my maths and English GCSE, but they wouldn't accept me onto the A-level course because my attendance wasn't high enough. And I remember my English teacher fighting for me to get on there because I think he recognised that I was a child who went into care, a 12-bedroom children's home at 12 years old. I was in and out of secure. I was in prison and I was really making an effort to, to try and change. And he'd recognised that, but they still wouldn't let me on. Um, and I think it's, it's things like that. You know, that one teacher, he, he did fight for me, but the system around wouldn't allow it. And I think that just... I continued um, and I had a job and I picked up book que- bookkeeping quite quickly in an office, so I became a bookkeeper, um, but not everybody not everybody, can do that. So if we've got somebody who's really willing and wants to stay in education, then we need to do more to support them into it. Um, now, education, formal education isn't for everybody, and it wasn't until that age that I could really sit and take it in. Um, But I don't think that chances, you've got to be able to take the opportunities and change comes from within. But we have to keep giving those chances and opportunities because young people... They can't always see them and they don't see another choice. They don't see another path. And they might dip their toes in and then think I'm going back to this old life because it's easier. We have to be there, consistently putting those things in front of them and not making them feel shameful if they don't complete it or not good enough because we're just adding to the reasons why they want to continue in with the life that they already have.
2: Mm, thank you, Kira. We we hear something about that quite a lot, that it's actually you know determination and persistence from everybody concerned that makes a real difference so important never to kind of give up on on anyone why do you think we get it so wrong with children in in the care system um i think that
0: there's a lot of tick box work so we need to do all of this and we need to get all of this from you because this is what we need for our managers and a young person gets lost in that now that isn't every practitioner um and sometimes practitioners want to put a relationship first but they feel pressured to do these tick box exercises um but i think that we need to listen to young people more and really listen to them um I know that in my work with young people, I talk about it quite often. They'll talk about like these extreme violent thoughts. I let them talk about it. Let's talk it out. And most of it is fear based. And some of them aren't in a place to recognise that. They think it's about respect. It's about loyalty. It's about not letting people down. But we need to let young people have these conversations and be open about it. And I feel like that's quite an extreme example. But I feel like people shut the conversation down because they're not comfortable with it. Um, and we're not starting to understand and learn about young people so they just won't talk that's my experience of the young people that I work with. they just won't talk to professionals
2: we're talking to Ray Bishop a little while back he said uh, that when he was in prison that nobody listens to you is w- would that be your experience
0: Yeah, definitely. So when I was in prison, I had a personal officer who she was actually quite good. She wasn't she wasn't that old and she had children of a similar age to me. Um, But in the secure home, so my experience in secure home was quite bad. There's a whole um, historical child care inquiry report into my time there, which spans before that, but also my time there. So the first time I went into secure, I was in a cell. A concrete cell with a crash mat on the floor there was nothing else in there no wooden furniture no anything and as I was in and out of there often I wouldn't go to school I didn't get on with the staff so they'd take the crash mat out in the day so I'd just be sitting on cold floor so there was clearly nobody really listening to young people then or the people that did want to listen I remember there was a PE teacher and he used to if I was out in like the normal area and not locked in secure if he could see me getting frustrated he'd take me out to play football because that was what I loved was football so he but he would recognize that and think, right, let's go outside and do something positive with this energy and channel it in the right way instead of just waiting for me to smash the place up. So I think that it's not always it's reading body language as well as listening in some situations. So young people can't always tell you how they feel and what they're thinking. Um, we need to be able to. Read the non-verbal cues, just like they do with professionals, and quite often they can sense if you're there for them or not. And that's how that. And other young people, they're really articulate; they'll tell you exactly what's wrong, exactly what they want. Um, but sometimes it's difficult for people to hear because it it tells them that their practice isn't as they think it is. Maybe not for all young people, but for that young person, um, and that's difficult to take in. So it's easier easier to maybe push a child to the side, then to take that on board. Whereas I like to think that I'm quite open to that um, because I think that's how we grow and that's how we get better as professionals. And that's how we help more young people by, if we, if we don't listen to young people, then we're never going to progress.
1: It's really, um, it's heartbreaking to think about a child being you know sat on a concrete floor. And I'm sure that's happened to lots and lots of children in the, in the secure uh, care system. It's kind of like we lose sight of the fact that they're children and I, I wonder if you know there's something about as a society where we're frightened to accept that we're not very good at looking after our children uh, you know if children are ending up in secure care it's because they we we've let them down as a society How, do you think we've got our priorities right when we when it comes to thinking about children and what they need
0: I think that the focus is too much on risk I think everything's on risk and mitigating risk, but if you've got a really risk adverse practitioner, they're completely missing where that young person's coming from, especially if it's a young person that's like, that is looking at going that into secure. Um, And the more we put on the whole, this child is a risk, we're missing like, what's going on for this child? What's happened to them? Why are they in this situation? You know, what is external? There's pulling them in these directions. What's going on internally? What's their environment like? How have they grown up? Who are the trusted people around them? Um, and, and if we're not looking at that, like the whole picture and just seeing them as a risk, then they're just getting locked up, whether that's on secure, like secure accommodation order on welfare grounds or through the criminal justice system. Um, but locking children up is a traumatic experience for them. So we are adding more trauma to their lives.
1: Yeah. Do you have any, any thoughts on how we could help um, the, the authority figures manage their fear of, of the risk better so that perhaps we don't go down that, that kind of pathway so quickly?
0: I think we miss a massive part of funding for... Activities for children and young people. Now, I mean, there is in Jersey, we do have youth clubs and we have a good youth service, and lots of young people go there. But a lot of the young people I work with don't go there. Um, Or when they do, they're not allowed back because they do something there which isn't acceptable. But we need like activities, like whether that's, I mean, as you guys know, I'm a massive advocate for sports, so jiu jitsu, boxing, MMA football any of that stuff but some children are really into poetry and music um or they'd actually really like to do drama but maybe they're a bit scared to go and do something like that so there's loads and loads of activities that we know help children get out of what's going on inside their head because quite often we see young people there's so much going on they're so hypervigilant and their anxiety levels are so high that they're behaving in a way that's trying to stop everything that's going on they're not actually sure which path they want to take, either because you know they can only see one road, and it's about having relationships with young people and supporting them to get to a place where they do want to go and do activities. And I think that we miss a lot around the prevention side, um, which is with families and communities. If we're not working with families and communities in a non-judgmental way, and I think that that's where you need people that have experiences. I think a lot of people that work with children and families have some experiences that might have led them down that way but I mean people that have been on the real receiving end of those of those services um, to be there to be there and to be helping but it needs to be in the community.
1: I think you made a a couple of really good points there about so the the activity for instance those activities are not cheap activities to do are they or to try so um, if you've got a family that's already stretched resource-wise then paying for kids to be doing activities um sometimes beyond beyond their means but also those activities that often aren't even available I, I live in an area where there's concerns about um teenagers acting out destructively and the solution to that is to get more people to sign up to neighborhood watch rather than address the reasons why children might be behaving destructively in the first place so uh, you know hear what you're saying some Good
0: advice there. That's where I think governments need to be funding this stuff or substituting it so that so that it's affordable for people because we know and it's well researched that some children are outside on the street because there's nobody at home now that parent could be working trying to pay the rent and put food on the table they could be addicted to drugs or they could just be somewhere else and they're not home well there's nothing good going on in that home so the child doesn't want to go home so they're outside which makes them vulnerable to exploitation and if they're already in an environment where there's lots of stuff going on and they don't have much money so they're hungry and they don't have the clothes that everyone else has got they're going to make money however they however they can yeah yeah absolutely
1: Do you think things would be different if the criminal justice system placed greater value on lived
0: experience? Oh, hundred percent. I think in some ways we're getting there, but I still think we're a million miles away. Um, And I think that having people work within services that have lived experience of the criminal justice system and lived experience of custody, because we know that people who enter custody are really marginalised by systems. then there's a, there's a better chance of getting it right because I challenge intervention plans all the time. Like this isn't going to work for that young person. And it's because I've got a long standing relationship with them. Um, and uh, sometimes you're, you're best off trying one or two things instead of having a list of six things that we're trying to get them through because they're not going to do it. Um, with as much support and guidance, it's just too much because actually quite a lot of it they don't really care about. Um, But if you've got a relationship with someone, and I think that if you have lived experience, in my experience, some of the young people that really are um, distrusting of services, you can break down some of those barriers and you can speak to them in a way that they understand. You don't need to ask lots of questions about stuff that they don't want to talk about because some of it you get anyway, um, even though everyone's experience is different. um, And. You know, I've had young people that have texted me and I've picked them up and we've just driven for an hour and a half listening to music. They haven't wanted to say much, but they've just wanted to be with someone that they feel safe with. And that is what a relationship is about. Now, I know that not in ev- in every role that isn't possible. My role is slightly different to somebody who is a York worker who has to do certain things. But I think a relationship can still come first before any of those intervention plans. And the more people we have with lived experience working inside the services, the more... The more they have a chance to progress and then get involved in writing intervention plans and policies and procedures. And because what I often see is, okay, we can give you a chance, but you're going to work as a volunteer. And that's just further stigmatizing, in my opinion.
1: Well, it's not really valuing what what extra has been brought by the person either, is it by virtue of having that experience?
0: No, like I started a degree, so I've got 18 months left of my youth justice degree. Now, when I came, to working in services, I was obviously very passionate and, you know, advocating for young people and trying to get these young people that are just ignored, um, listened to, especially when they were starting to voice what they wanted to say, like, why, why can't you see it from here? And I've been, you know, not, I've been not invited to meetings, um, that I probably should have been at, um, and because I didn't have the language that the professionals had, I sometimes was shut down by, by that. So I was like, I'm going to do a degree to prove that, this theory side, which has been very useful. I've learned loads. It's been great, has nothing on lived experience. Cause that where I'm up to, so I've been just over two years studying, it's not even come close to my experiences of being in custody as a child. What it feels like, the factors that got me there, what it was like when I left, the, you know, what all my friends were experiencing, what was happening at home. Like there's there's bits and pieces in there, but it it doesn't, it doesn't even come close to the feelings of it.
1: It's quite a lot. It seems like there's um quite a trend at the moment for people with lived experience to become criminologists and to pursue that that route later in life. Is there, is there much of a trend towards people with lived experience um, studying for youth youth work qualifications, do you think?
0: Um, I think it's really difficult to get involved in. I think sometimes youth work is maybe a bit easier um, for some people with lived experience to get involved in but again it's usually voluntary um, it's getting that actual proper pathway because even if they're only just at the beginning of the process i haven't been involved in crime for i was 31 when i was employed um, so i you know it'd been 13 years since i'd last been arrested whereas for some people they're quite close to their experience still and i think that's where we need to be opening up those doors and creating those pathways Um, And I think that one one of my benefits, especially in the area I live in, um, was that I've done so much in my life with no help from the services. Everything I did wasn't with help. None of them helped me. If anything, they were just my experience of going back to college later on in life. That was, you know, again, another knockback. Um, Whereas I think when people are trying to create this pathway and help other people, for some people, it's too much. And we have to we have to acknowledge that that the you know their experience of the system is really difficult for them to work in, but that's where we need to be supporting them to help them understand the challenges and build resilience. And I think that for me especially, the people I learned that from was other lived experience professionals that have been working for for years in these environments. They were able to help me understand why I found it so challenging.
1: It just seems as though there's a massive, um, you know, as if the the burden of responsibility for their resilience is very much at an individual level. You know, you, you have a a passion, you're a strong, strong woman, very determined. And so have managed to draw on your own resources, but actually something about the resilience of the society and the system that ought to be making it possible for people to play their best role in society and contribute uh, without it having to be left to someone having to just fight and fight to, to get
0: to get there it seems and yes I remember like I remember being like 14 and this is the more you go on and reflect back 14 and I was sitting I was in a secure environment and it was like morning assembly and I remember being told you're going to go to prison by the time you're 15, you're going to be dead by the time you're 18, you're never going to achieve anything. And that was the kind of things that we were told and I just remember and then we were getting thrown statistics. I remember sitting there thinking I'm not going to be one of your statistics but I didn't have enough relational support around me at that time to be able to deal with what was going on so I was still very much responding to the outside world trying to keep everybody as far as far away from me as possible um, because they were all the problem and not me and it was you know that kind of thing which as you grow up you realize that actually I don't need to respond to that situation that doesn't matter and that's where the internal stuff comes from but still now even though it's not quite like that Young people still have those same feelings that they're being pushed to the side, that people don't believe they can achieve what they want to want to achieve. And resilience is developed within relationships as well, isn't it? By people believing in you, people believing that you can achieve. And I say this quite often. I had no hope, only ambition, because everywhere I went, there was no hope for me in these places. But I was I was going to do it. And throughout those years, I wasn't completely on my own because I developed relationships with people and friendships that support me on the way. And I remember one boxing coach, um, you know, he used to tell me all the time, like, you can do it, you can get there, you should be doing this, this is what you should be doing, you know. And those constant, those things in your ear, when you've already got that drive, um, you know, he really believed in me.
1: Yeah, sounds massive. And you you referred them to school. And it often seems as though people in the criminal justice system have not only been failed by their parents and society, but they've also been failed by the education system. Do you think employing people who struggled or are excluded from school might lead to an improvement in policy and strategy around how we manage disruptive
0: behaviour or truancy? I think that that's that's another area where lived experience is needed. I think it's needed in all areas because it doesn't mean that it's about balancing out the power. It's not to say that academics don't have the skills because of course they do. They have loads of skills, but you know, it's about knowledge exchange. So you know people with lived experience might not speak the same language as academics but academics can often if they are person-centered and relationship-centered take on what lived experience people are saying but I think what we have is a lot of not just academics but professionals they can't take on what lived experience people are saying so they don't want to employ them or the lived experience people become a threat because young people usually like them they get them they come from the same difficulties they come from the same background you know they know what it's like to wake up and have no breakfast or to you know have to wear like a jumper if they have an extra jumper in the house because it's freezing or to be out late and you know or maybe they have both parents there but the parents were always arguing and so i think that lived experience people young people are more drawn to them because and they talk the same language usually so you know it's like that what I was saying before, it's like a sixth sense, you know, that they feel between each other, but alternative education, I think we miss so much. Um, the same with activities, like the stuff that you can learn boxing, like self-belief, you build resilience because you're having to try and learn to understand and control your emotions under pressure. Um, you're having to learn to breathe through challenging situations because I often hear like count to 10 and breathe in anger management, like it's the most useless tool that you could possibly give a child who doesn't understand that they're angry they don't realize that they're that angry they don't realize I go to zero to a hundred in no time at all so learning to breathe and develop those emotions while doing an activity is educational and it's the same with cooking for example it's, you can do a maths lesson in cooking because you can make the recipe quite complicated and let's divide it and what do we do with this part and I think we miss a lot with alternative education and I think that's where sometimes having people that have lived experience of being in alternative education or struggling in the mainstream school environment, it working with those young people, you know, you can, you get to know a young person and everybody in, in especially in alternative education, I think they need to be treated individually. Sometimes it has to be group lessons, of course there does. But I think that we need to understand their individual challenges and support them with them.
1: Sounds um, also like some of the professionals could perhaps do with recognising when they feel jealousy or rivalrous. Um in terms of of, of what you're saying
0: oh I come against it all the time and it took me a long time actually it was one of my one of my managers who kept saying it to me like don't worry about it this is why and I I couldn't take that in because you know that self-worth stuff still there especially when I'm in this environment where people have all these like extra qualifications I couldn't take that in because it's I'm (laughs) As a person, that's quite difficult for me to take in anyway, but I started to recognise it actually is because I've built relationships that they can't build. But that doesn't mean that they can't be sharing their knowledge with me to help in that relationship. And that's where I think the working together needs to be better.
2: Thank you, Kira. Great answers. Uh, there. Um, I can only imagine that you must have faced tremendous barriers when trying to get to work in the criminal justice system can you tell us a bit about those those barriers and how you overcame them
0: yeah so um I think I mentioned it a bit earlier about you know trying to volunteer and then trying to go back to so then I um I went to speak to people that were quite senior I ended up in this meeting and I was I'd come from my job as a bookkeeper so I was dressed in office clothes um quite presentable And we were sitting in this meeting and it it was about, it was actually about the struggles of people with criminal records working within services. Um, And they didn't know that I was there with lived experience. And as the conversation started, my passion came out straight away. As soon as it got to something a bit tricky and, um, you know, I said, this is my experience. And they were really taken back because I presented as someone who was quite articulate, um, seemed like I had an education, um, you know, presented well and as the conversation continued they were like you you know you should be employed in these services um and then obviously i had to look for jobs in the services once i had that it wasn't going to be a barrier for me that whole you know criminal record process obviously i had to disclose fully what was on it to make sure that was okay and at the bottom of your dbs actually anyway it says if you're a risk to children or young people or vulnerable adults um and i think that's a box that people need to look at a little bit more um, so then it was quite, it was another 18 months after that before I before I, I got a job, but in the meantime, I was asked at a senior management uh, meeting for the government of Jersey to do a presentation on corporate parenting. Um, so I spoke a little bit about my experience and then I spoke about what I thought would make a better corporate parent because it was around children in care and care leavers and what we can do to support them. My, even though I was a child in care, a lot of my battles were in care, but the criminal justice system. That was, I think if you've been in care and you've entered the criminal justice system, you're even further marginalized because you can't get a job, you know, you've got all this stigma attached attached to you. Um, So I did that presentation, which was really, really successful. Um, And then even as working, even getting a job in the professional environment, it was just barrier after barrier. People don't want to accept you. You know, it'd be, it was really difficult. And I actually think if I didn't have the right support, I don't know if I would have been able to continue because it was so hard.
2: What was the support you had, you are thinking of particularly?
0: Yeah, so I had like, um, I had one person in the workplace um, and then I started reaching out to other lived experience professionals because these people just didn't get what I was struggling. And at times I didn't really have the words for why I was struggling because it's almost like a trauma response. You're going back to that, like, mm. you know, and it's you know, people being confrontational or shutting you out of things. Um, yeah. It was really, really difficult to be accepted in the workplace.
2: Mm. Does that sound like you had some, some good friends and uh, colleagues who you were able to, uh, here, speak to and get support.
0: Yeah, and also um the gym, like the gym's a massive thing. So at the end of last year, I don't mind trends actually, I was starting to really burn out. I was doing a lot of 16-hour days. A lot of my young people were in the police station lot and in court, and you know, everything was just a you know, got a lot was going on all at once. So I was working a lot and I wasn't taking care of myself. Um, and I knew that I was I was burning out. I've been getting worn for about six months, but I can keep going, keep going, keep going. And it was something that I had to learn actually that when you have got lived experience, sometimes your threshold is a lot higher because it's quite familiar as well. Um, So for me, I booked a jujitsu competition. I wasn't in the gym as much as I usually would be, but I still trained and competed. Then I booked a holiday with my son. And since April, I haven't been working those hours. You know, it took a while to wind down from that, but now I'm back in the gym as normal. And that's something now that's like a non-negotiable for me is I need, I need to be looking after myself and I do that by spending a lot of time in the gym. And the more time I spend in the gym, the less I'll be drawn into minor disagreements because I just, I don't need to be drawn into that. So that is something that I learned myself actually working in the services. That is something that's very important to me, my emotional well-being, and also how I deal with challenges in the workplace.
2: Thank you. Yeah. It's important to be able to manage your time, isn't it? Now- Moving on a bit, because you've already hinted about this in your references to the gym, because you're a very accomplished uh, athlete, aren't you? Can you tell us a bit about something of your achievements and how sport has helped you in your mental health and uh, well-being?
0: So after after I had my son, a lot of my childhood trauma came up, even though I'd actually dealt with a lot of it. Um, I think that's quite a big thing for... For women, especially women that have been in care because I was like, oh, my God, they're going to come and take my child away. And that was furthest from the truth because there was no reason for them to even be involved. But you've got all these, you know, I I left the care system at 16. I was asked if I wanted a social worker. I told them not very politely where to go. And I never heard from them again, even though I went back to prison after. So I kind of continued from there. So and because football was such a big part of my childhood, I played football. I mean, even at my second school. So my second primary school, I was there for a year and a half before they excluded me, but I played football even in the boys' B team. Like so, and then when I went to my last primary school, there was a girls' team there. So I always played football. And I only really stopped when I was 13 because I was looked up a lot. I was quite different to the other girls in the team, or I felt different. Um so I knew that and I'd done different sports but I had a bit of trauma attached to football so I didn't want to go back there and I always wanted to box um and when I was a teenager I was told that I wasn't allowed to box by the care home because if I learned to punch properly then I could cause someone even more harm and work with that lead um when actually it probably would have been the best place was to put me in a boxing gym um so I wanted to do that but again there was something inside me that made me a bit nervous so I started Brazilian jiu-jitsu um well actually I started MMA first I started MMA and I remember going into MMA gym and I was the only girl there and um I just loved it straight away I absolutely loved it and they nicknamed me Kev I got this nickname Kev because I was the only girl there and I think it used to make them feel a bit better about hitting me (laughs) um they'd be like she's not a girl she's Kev so there was all that banter and stuff there which helps build character building builds resilience you know and you do get that in the gym um and then I started doing jiu-jitsu about six months later. And uh, I remember thinking that, that some people had been away and competed. It was really hard to get an MMA fight from Jersey. Um, so I was like, I want to compete and I'm going to do Brazilian jiu-jitsu. So I started doing Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And the first competition I went to was the Europeans in Lisbon. So it was a massive competition. I remember people saying, you sure you want to go there? Why don't you try one of the smaller ones? And I was like, no, no, I'm going there. And I won my first fight and then I lost the second fight. Um, and from there, I just you know, continued competing and I had to learn about dealing with the weight cuts and how I was trying to do too much of that. Um, and then I started competing at a weight that was closer to what I was um, and I started winning. <laughs> and then I, um, I remember I had a really, I had a, you know, a difficult time and eight weeks later I had the British Championships. And it's these difficult times that I think help make, push me forward. And then I become a double British champion and I become a European champion. At, this is at Blue Belt. Um, and then I injured myself. So I was out of sport for quite a long time, which is when I started thinking, I, I want to work with young people. I need to put myself out there. Um, a lot of reflection was done during that time that I was injured. Cause I mean, i had been training three times a day for God knows how long. And all of a sudden I was at the gym once a day doing my physio. I wasn't able to lift my arm up because of the operation on my shoulder, I was on crutches. Uh, It was really difficult, Um, and then, then again after then COVID happened, just as I was getting back into it. Um, So then after COVID, I started competing, and I got my purple belt in July, and I competed last month, and I got double gold and silver in a competition in London. So, for me, having those goals um, is really important, and I sometimes I'm aware that I have a lot of goals in my career, in my personal life, with my family, and in sport but goals are really really important to me
1: how did um how did you manage the success was that a challenge
0: yeah so the first when I won the British Championships I didn't expect to feel like this either I like got my first gold medal and um actually I'd got a gold medal before that but it wasn't a big competition like that it was one of the smaller competitions um and I just didn't feel worthy I was like, if only these people really knew about me and I think because I've been going through you know a bit of a challenging time those few months my self-worth was a bit low and all of that kind of thing um yeah and then you know I remember speaking to someone about it because it's something that I've not always done in my life like you know you keep stuff in and so many people come from difficult backgrounds especially in sports um and it's actually a lot of people feel like that But even though I felt like I wasn't worthy of it, I never went into a competition thinking I couldn't win it. So I had that, you know, I'm here to win. And if I don't get a gold medal, then I've not succeeded and I need to do better. And even when I get a gold medal, there's still stuff to work on. So I had that mindset anyway. But yeah, that was definitely a challenge.
1: It's interesting you saying about people often having had different difficult backgrounds in sport and that just seemed to be the case especially with kind of like boxing and Mm -hmm. and martial arts it's interesting that the sport you've excelled in is a martial art and I wonder if professionals might have tried to dissuade you from this or been a bit judgmental about your choice of sport as being uh martial art
0: yeah so when I was when I was young and I lived in care and I wanted to box I wasn't allowed to Um, And ultimately they had that decision and it wasn't like I lived in an area where there was loads of different boxing clubs to pick from and that I could just like go on my own. And I don't know if I would have went on my own. It's something that you kind of need support with as well, isn't it? Um, So, yeah, I was definitely discouraged from doing it. But, you know, but even when you look at some of the greatest martial arts artists and where they've come from, you know, a lot of people don't get to be hugely successful unless they've got something driving them behind it and it's usually adversity um and quite often you go into the gym and you you know you don't know until you get to people in the gym don't even know all of my background some of them do but there was people in the gym that I'm not close to that don't even know that much about my background because it's not some you know I don't go in and talk about it so you know you only where it's relevant really um, and with the people that have become, you know, like my friends, it's not that it's a, it's a secret, but it's the same for new people coming in the gym that come from that difficult background. I think people like me instantly recognize that. So you're more likely to let them know that they're in a safe space. And I think young people, especially going into martial arts gyms, they're going to find that same acceptance that they find from their group of friends. Um, but it's going to be people that aren't saying it's OK to behave like that, but they're they're talking about it in a different way. And I think that's really, really important because that's role modelling, that's mentoring. And that's why I'm so big on getting young people involved in activities, even if it takes them a year to get them to the activity that they want. And I think that's where we need to You see a lot of 12, month, 12 week plans, don't you? You know, the funding's been agreed for 12 weeks, but sometimes if you've got you might have a group of six young people that have been given six week funding to go into this boxing gym, for example, one of them might. Want to continue, but they've only just started building a relationship with the coach because it's taken them that long because they've had such a difficult background. And then the funding's not agreed after that. Where does that leave those young people? Yeah. They just feel yeah. rejected again, pushed to the side, not important.
1: Yeah, it must be a, a hard experience. And we, we recently interviewed Dave Harris, who's the founder of the Ringside Charitable Trust, which is campaigning for a specialist retirement home for, for former boxers. Do you think sports associated with machismo might have something extra to offer to people who've experienced more hardship earlier in life, something beyond something that other sports like football, athletics, um, rugby might not, might not offer in quite the same
0: way? Yeah. And if you if you look at um like the work from um if you've if you ever read the book The Body Body Keeps a School, they talks it talks in there about you know martial arts being such a big thing for helping young people recover from trauma, as well as yoga and other things. Cause like I mentioned earlier, you're learning to breathe and you're learning to deal with your emotions. And if you've got a good coach or even good teammates, like even though you box on your own, but people in the gym with you that When you feel like if you don't know that those butterflies in your stomach's anxiety and nerves, because nobody's told you your whole life and you've been told man up or woman up and, you know, don't cry. Get on with it. Be tough. You don't learn to recognize those feelings and what they are until someone points them out to you. Um, I didn't know what anxiety was. I didn't know that I felt anxious sometimes. And when I felt like that, I, I become angry because that's what you know. And you learn those kind of things and you learn about your emotions and when you don't always get it right in the gym so you've got to be persistent you've got to keep going especially brazilian jiu-jitsu it's so technical um you know i've had times when i've gone in the gym and i've left thinking i've just been like thrown all over the place for the last two hours but why do i even do this and the next day i'm back doing the same thing because that's the that's part of it and the, what you learn and the growth um that's where I've learned to develop my emotions is in martial arts. People wonder, have helped me along the way, but it's in the gym.
1: I wondered as well whether, you know, the emphasis on being able to protect yourself that's there in the, because that's quite different from some of the other sports, isn't it? And I wonder whether that might be a great counteraction to, you know, antidote to feelings of vulnerability that might be there if people have been victimised during childhood.
0: So there's one person in my gym and he was young when he started and he started because he was getting bullied and he's like an absolute machine now and watching him grow as a person in the gym um even though he comes from quite a different background to the young people I work with are heavily involved in the criminal justice system watching him grow and develop and also find like he was so quiet and find his voice because he was encouraged to talk and everyone's asking him how he was and you know when people are saying how was school they they actually care I'm not asking you because I'm not interested like you know if you've got something to tell me about school then I'll, I'm, I'm here to listen to it and I'm um, feeling and that goes back to being listened to and feeling heard doesn't it mm-hmm. and you don't always feel like that in the gym because sometimes you know you've I don't care carry on go again you know you do get that as well but that's part of the that's part of building resilience you know being able to keep pushing forward and it it it's tough but the love you get in the gym through that and the relationships you build during those challenging times in the gym are strong
1: it's been a lovely conversation Kira. but we always like to ask our guests at the end about how they have maintained their own well-being uh, when doing really challenging work and it sounds as though sport has been essential to your well-being but I wondered if there are any other strategies you'd recommend to our listeners
0: so I love being in nature. Like I love the sunrise. I love the sunset. I like walking at night when like the stars are out. Um, And it's something else I wasn't doing for a while because I was so busy rushing around driving that a couple of times a week I try and come home, drop my car off and walk walk to my training session and then walk back and just let my thoughts go, you know, go behind me as I'm walking. Um, So being in nature is really, really important to me. And again, that's, you know, if you would have said to me when I was 14, you know looking up at the stars is going to be really peaceful I don't know actually when I was a kid I used to like looking at the stars so I think I somewhere had that in me but you know I wouldn't have been getting up to go and watch the sunrise um unless I had to be up anyway at that time when I was young but I um yeah so nature nature is really important to me and I try I try and meditate it's something I find difficult but I find like jiu is meditation to me same with boxing and kickboxing and even cooking you know I if I prep in my food I'm just in that mindful state cooking so I have actually got quite a few things in my toolbox now that I use that that help me and obviously spending time with my son being on the beach in the woods you know any of that stuff.
1: Sounds like you live in a very mindful life Kira.
0: I try.
2: You're based in Jersey are you?
0: Yeah Jersey.
2: Yeah I lived there for a short period when I was very young. Man, um, I remember St. Juan's Bay as being one of the most beautiful places in the world.
0: Yeah, that's a surface sport. So when I was injured from sport, actually, I was like, I need to do something. So I started learning to surf and I spent hours and hours and hours in the sea. Um, but there's a beach called Plemel Bay. So if you ever come back to Jersey, you have to go then. It's like you wouldn't even believe it's in the UK. I love it. It's like the best beach ever. Great to have that tip. Good tip, Thank you. yeah. Thank you very much, Kira. Great to meet you. Thank you very much. It's really nice to meet you both too. Thank you very much for having me.